Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney with the broadest and deepest experience in all forms of aircraft propulsion. PrattWhitney.com TA Connections, the industry's most comprehensive airline lodging and crew logistics program. TAConnections.com Clear, a leader in touchless travel. Learn more at clearme.com slash airlines. And Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale. SeaburyCapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at AirlinesConfidential.com. You're at the right place. Another edition of Airlines Confidential. I'm Ben Baldanza. And I'm Chris Chimes. Thanks for dialing in. Hey, Ben. Hope it was a good week in Baldanza land. We've got lots to cover, so I'm going to dive right in with the news. And of course, we start with more earnings results from the big carriers in the U.S., American, United, and Southwest, all three showing profits and a fair amount of shrugging off of any Delta variant complications. But Ben, I'm sure you have much more insight and analysis than that quick summary, so I'm going to turn it over to you. Well, that's a good summary, Chris. But in general, I think there were a few themes that were really common among these three earnings reports. All of them talked uh, encouragingly about the revenue environment and volumes returning and words like green shoots were used and things like that. And that was good. They also all talked about balance sheet repair. And by that, what I mean is obviously, as our listeners know, over the last year and a half, airlines took on a lot of debt, some from the U.S. government, a lot from private financing, a couple of these airlines leveraging their frequent fire programs and airplanes and other things. And in the process, airlines took on a lot of debt in order to create a strong enough cash position with the uncertainty of demand, knowing that they would need that. So everybody's cash built up a lot, but their debt got a lot higher. So now all three of these airlines are talking about what they're going to do to start paying that debt back. And they all talked about you know, the strong cash generation that their businesses can create and how each of them put different time frames on it of how much debt will be coming off over what period. But that whole theme of sort of we're restrengthening our balance sheets again now that demand is coming back was strong in all of these earnings reports. And I think that was good. What was concerning to me mostly, Chris, was that other than American, there wasn't really much talk about cost control. Um, American did talk about sort of a structural cost program to try to take a little, little over a billion dollars out of their costs. Not ex exactly sure where that's going to come from. And when airlines talk about structural costs, they generally are talking about big contracts and major long-term expenses like maintenance and things. They're not talking about you know, paying people less or using fewer people to do things when they say structural costs. And that's what American was talking about. Didn't hear much on costs from United and Southwest, although Southwest did warn about potential labor cost 
hit because they're finding it hard to attract enough people to serve everything they need to serve. And that's a theme we've talked about on this podcast for a while. And that's a theme going on in American business right now. The last thing I'll say, Chris, in terms of these earnings is United seems to me now to be the only one of these three. And I'll even kind of include Delta in this and these four airlines, four big airlines that is sort of openly talking about the fact that the low-cost carriers in the U.S. have kind of permanently collapsed the pricing structure. And they've they talked about their new order for airplanes and they're getting larger gauge airplanes to replace smaller gauge airplanes. And they talked about all of that being more seat cost efficient. And they, you know, they are the ones who seem to be most open with, we understand the way the revenue environment's going to look for the next number of years because these low cost carriers aren't going away. So we're going to build our airline to be competitive with that. They, as much as any airline, want business travel to return. We'll talk about that shortly, you know, and other things. But United seems to be the most realistic of the big four right now and sort of having an understanding of what the revenue environment's like to look like for the next couple of years. So those were all my thoughts as I listened to the earnings. Lots of similarities, but a little bit of variance around understanding the environment and cost control. Yeah, I think that's a, a very fair and uh, frankly excellent summary of, of the calls. I, I had a wonder... As you were talking to, at what point does Wall Street and the broader investment community start really pushing the industry and the major carriers specifically on what are the long-term or permanent changes that are in the making from the last year and a half? Um, there are, you talked a lot about structural cost reductions, but there are probably a lot of structural changes that have to work through the system and work through the process. And I, th I think uh, investors are going to be looking for that kind of information. I agree with you, Chris. And the one, this wasn't directly in the earnings call, but it was related to the questioning in the earnings call. The one real curious thing that I thought American did was they sort of played the environment card the way others have as to why they're not putting seat back in-flight entertainment in their airplanes. Mm -hmm. So United makes this big announcement of new airplanes that are all going to have screens in the back of the seats. And United talked about how that was real important, especially for families and probably also important to them that Delta's doing that. Right. But Americans sort of doubled down on the fact that they're not doing that. And they said that it's more environmentally friendly not to do with it. And I kind of chuckled at that, Chris, because, you know, a few months ago, we had Frontier put on cheaper, lighter seats and tell the world it was because they wanted to be more green. And I'm just wondering if that for the next couple of years is going to be sort of the go-to reason airlines do something unpopular. We'll have to see. I mean, I... I noticed that too. And again, you got to have equipment that works one way or another. So if you're not going to have in-flight entertainment at each seat, you better make sure that the outlets work so people can charge their own devices. And that's one of the things I struggle with whenever I'm, I've been you know, flying a couple times a month, the last two or three months, and there's just no consistency on the outlets working even. So you got to have a backup plan. Well, with all those crowded airplanes and airports the major airlines are reporting about, it's good to remember that Clear makes travel safer and easier. Become a member of Clear and you'll enjoy frictionless journeys when you use Clear's Home to Gate feature, 
which lets you know exactly the best time to leave for the airport. Plus, Clear's signature experience helps you move seamlessly through airport security. Where will you go? Get back out there with Clear. So Ben, related to the results and earnings calls this past week, there was some pretty good swagger from airline CEOs about the outlook for business travel. Is this bullishness or bullshitness uh, in your your take? (laughs) Well, um, I think there's both of those in these comments. (laughs) Obviously, it's in all of the big airlines' aspirations that business travel return, return quickly, and return as strong as it was going into the pandemic. And each of the airline CEOs that announced earnings, and Ed Bastian, who announced earnings, the week before talked about this too, talked about sort of their encouragement about talking to companies and how companies are saying they're going to get their people back out on the road. Interestingly, a few of them talked about what they saw as good news of people going back to the office and somehow how they sort of implied that people going back to the office means that they'll start traveling again. I didn't exactly get that connection. Just because you go to an office instead of work for home doesn't mean that CFO is going to say, I'm willing to support a big travel budget. And so, but I thought it was interesting that they all use that, that fact that a lot of companies are saying they're asking people to come back to the office as I guess they're, what they're saying is it's kind of a return to normal behavior by businesses. And maybe they're hopeful that that means that would mean travel as well. To use your word, the bullshitness of this, I think, is that they're sort of ignoring some realities of business travel. You know, 20% of pre-pandemic business travel was trade shows and conventions. So when are those trade shows and conventions going to be back to the same level as 2019? When are, you know, tens of thousands of people going to descend on Las Vegas for Comdex or the big conventions that go on in New Orleans, Orlando, Chicago, lots of places, right? And when are people going to be comfortable or are trade shows and conventions for a number of years going to be a little bit smaller because they're going to continue to offer a virtual way to participate or not? That's a big piece of business travel. I haven't heard any airline CEO talk about that. I also haven't heard any of these CEOs talk about the 20% of business travel that is intra-company business travel. People traveling just to see people in their own company, not to see a customer. And it just, it would boggle my mind to think that companies who were spending a lot of money on that kind of travel wouldn't have learned over the last year and a half that a lot of that intercompany business can be done really effectively and much more efficiently without putting people on airplanes. And that's another big piece of business travel. So the business travel that everybody thinks about going to see clients and meeting with customers and winning new business and winning more business from existing customers and developing relationships, that's really important, but that's less than half of traditional business travel. And when I hear all these big CEOs talk about business travel, they're talking about that piece. And what would be nice to hear them do, Chris, is to be a little bit more realistic about here are the pieces of business travel we expect to come back strong, and here are the things we're going to watch closely because we're not sure what's going to happen. I realize it's in their interest to put out a real positive story, and when they're seeing positive bookings, report those positive bookings. 
But to me, there's going to be a structural shift in what business travel is post-pandemic. And the absolute volume of travel will absolutely get back to where things were in 2019 at some point. But those people won't all be traveling for exactly the same reasons. That's my view. Yeah, Professor Ben just knocked it out of the park on that one. I had the same reaction. I didn't understand what companies reopening their offices has to do with business travel. There was a lot of online skepticism as I was like just scrolling through Twitter feeds and LinkedIn posts of executives outside the airline business or just business people in general being very quizzical about some of this analysis and or people saying, not my company, our management's made it clear business travels cut way back. And I th- also think what's missing is what kind of business travel. I've talked to several people with large companies. They've cut way back on even who can fly business class. So e- even up to this, the C-suite, people are flying in coach. That's probably short term for the next six, eight months into 2022. But the kind of business travel is something I want to know too. So look, I, I hope they're right. I think we all hope they're right. But I think there's a much steeper hill than... Um, was suggested in some of those calls last week. Ben, changing gears real quick, we had a conversation a week or two ago about Avalo pulling out of markets already uh, just three or four months after their start. Now we've got Breeze pulling back. They dropped five routes out of Norfolk immediately, and they reduced frequency on more than a dozen routes from what was four weekly flights to twice a week. You weren't overly concerned or surprised about Avalo. Are you still feeling the same way with this Breeze news? Well, I think so. Let me tell you a quick story, Chris. Um, As you know, I like to play board games. And a number of years ago, I was looking for a game that had gone out of print. And I called a local game shop in the town that I lived in at the time. And I said, do you have a copy of this game? It's been out of print for a year or two. And the guy said to me on the phone, well, you know, son, there's a reason games go out of print. (laughs) <laughs> and I thought that was really funny. And I thought of that when I saw this question you put in about Breeze cutting back. I mean, Breeze and Avalo in both cases are, it's great that they're new airlines in the U.S. I wish them, you know, Godspeed to do well. But they're trying routes that other airlines have looked at but decided not to fly. So it's not surprising to me that early in both airlines um, evolution, that while trying to make new connections of cities that have only been flown on a connect basis, but fly them nonstop, some of them are going to stimulate and people are going to be really happy with that nonstop and make that work and others just aren't. And so when I saw Breeze pull five routes out of Norfolk, what I, what I thought was, wow, well, maybe that city, its own business environment as others just isn't ready for that nonstop service yet. And maybe the connections they have through Atlanta or through DCA or through uh, Newark, depending on which directions they're going, uh, may be enough for what they're doing right now. And, and Breeze just wasn't able to stimulate with the better service pattern. That doesn't mean to me that Breeze is in trouble or that Avalo's in trouble. What it means is that airlines like this trying to do new things are going to have a lower batting average. When American Airlines adds a new flight in Dallas 
or Delta adds a new flight in Atlanta, they can really well predict how that flight will behave economically, where the passengers may come from. When you're putting a plane between two cities that don't have nonstop service and maybe have never had nonstop service, it's just a riskier thing to do. Now, the good thing about both these business models, and I said this about Avalon, I'll say the same thing about Breeze, is that they're flexible enough and nimble enough to be able to recognize what's working and what isn't and change quickly that which isn't working and work more. So I'm sure Breeze would rather have not have had to cancel those routes, just like Avalo wouldn't have wanted to cancel what it did. But it's not surprising to me, given the business models that both are propagating. At one point, I was talking to the CEO of Wizz Air in Europe many, many years ago. And what he told me, this was a long time ago, so I'm not saying this represents Wiz today, but he said that their averages, they would start 100 new routes a year, and they were happy if they kept 35 of them long term. So under that kind of context, they were in the same mode as Breeze and Avalo. They were trying to create lots of new connections from cities in Eastern and Western Europe. So they sort of knew that was their MO. Start 100 routes, hopefully 35 make it. So it's possible that the Breeze and Avalo are starting to learn when you start new routes that haven't been flown nonstop before or have been avoided by big airlines to fly nonstop you got to figure out what the track record's going to be and learn quickly what kind of things are going to work and do more of those and what things aren't going to work and cancel that route and deploy the plane elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, going back to last spring, David Nealman was pretty clear that he was going to take a we'll see how it goes approach early on. And he uh, said he wouldn't hesitate to pull out of markets that weren't working and to do so quickly and immediately like he did uh, this past week. In the short term, I'm not sure that's going to hurt them that much. They're really not chasing corporate accounts and business travel that might be troubled by this kind of approach. And for their their core passenger that they're trying to target, they're not paying attention to what's going on in other parts of the country or you know, they're online searching for the lowest fares and they see one, they're going to grab it. So I think the strategy is going to continue for a while. I think you're right. Well, Chris, we didn't have time to talk about it last week, but it isn't a surprise, I guess, that Congress is getting into the game of airline flight delays and cancellations. Senator Maria Cantwell, who chairs the Senate Commerce Committee that oversees aviation, has written to airline CEOs asking them to respond to an 11-point letter asking about staffing levels, scheduling practices, and marketing tactics. You spent a long time on Capitol Hill working for Congress and representing airlines. (laughs) Your thoughts? (laughs) Yeah, defending the defenseless or the indefensible sometimes. You know, I guess it's kind of expected or it's very expected after three rounds of federal aid and more than $50 billion in assistance. You know, Congress is going to take more than a passing interest in what's going on and, and how their constituents are impacted. I thought it was really odd that she only wrote to some airlines, characterizing only those airlines as poorly managed. So six airlines that I saw got the letter, Southwest, Allegiant, American, Delta, JetBlue, and Republic. So it's kind of like, why them? But her staff got what they wanted. They got wanted headlines. They got headlines. I'm not sure this is all that helpful right now. I'm pretty sure airline CEOs 
already know that they're having a miserable summer and they're pissing off their customers. So I didn't think they needed a congressional inquiry to tell them that. <laughs> but I'm also not sure it's Senator Campbell's job to be helpful to the airlines right now. I mean, she helped secure a bunch of aid and she's going to be a skeptic about how that money's being spent and why it's not being spent as effectively as she thinks it should. So, you know, it doesn't surprise me. I'm not sure it helps, but again, that's not her job. Well, that's good insight and makes a lot of sense. And just like the earlier topic that we talked about of airlines having to potentially refund bag fees for bags that aren't delivered within a certain amount of time or for Wi-Fi that doesn't work. It's clear that we're in a mode right now where many in Washington think we've given this industry a lot of money. They need to start being accountable for things consumers care about, like fees, like reliability, things like that. And this is another example that I think you're right on. We'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential, which is brought to you by Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in the design, manufacture, and service of aircraft and helicopter engines and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is driving the next generation of more sustainable travel. This revolutionary geared turbofan engine is allowing airlines and airports to open new routes and fly more people farther with less fuel and much lower noise. Learn more at pwgtf.com. The Airlines Confidential Podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. This is the part of the show where we turn it over to our listeners. Remember, you can leave a question on our voicemail at 202-964-0177, or you can email us at questions at airlinesconfidential.com, or visit our website at airlinesconfidential.com and follow the props. We're available on all the major podcast platforms, and you can ask Amazon Alexa or Google Assist to turn us on. Just say, play the Airlines Confidential podcast. Ben, our first question is from Andrew Carbonell from Mexico City. He's asking something specific about a Delta policy, but I'd like you to respond in a more global way about why these things may be happening. Hi, Ben and Chris. Love your podcast so much. As a frequent international non-U.S. citizen traveler, I just had a weird experience with Delta. I was flying from Mexico City to JFK via Atlanta on a first-class ticket. Once in Atlanta, I went straight to the Sky Club Lounge, but they did not allow me to go inside because, quote, first-class passengers were not allowed. I was extremely shocked about the news, mainly because of the amount of money I spent on the ticket, but also because I'd never heard that from any other airline worldwide. Is this part of Delta's access policies? Does that make sense from their business perspective? Thanks. P.S. I did finally manage to get into the club as a titanium-level member with Delta sister company, Aeromexico, but still curious about their policy. Well, thanks, Andrew, and I'm glad you made it into the club. (laughs) It's certainly a nicer way to wait for the connect, isn't it? I went on Delta's website, and I looked at their current policies around access. And I was confused here a bit, Chris, because it's pretty clear that it says if you're flying on certain types of first-class tickets, that you will have access to the lounge when you're flying on that airline. 
So, for example, you couldn't, if he was flying Aeromexico uh, in first class, that ticket on its own wouldn't let him get into the Delta Lounge, even though he was a Delta customer for, you know, f- because of the ticket type. I mean, maybe the the rules of his credit card did or his level with Aeromexico did. But what Delta says is if you're flying on Delta at the time and you have a certain type of premium ticket, you get access to the lounge. I'm wondering what kind of ticket Andrew had. He was clearly sitting in first class. He was clearly had a first class ticket, but Delta does have more restrictive and less restrictive first class tickets in terms of refundability, in terms of other usage. So what I'm guessing here is, Andrew, is that you had the type of first class ticket that Delta does not allow into its clubs just for the type of ticket is. And the reason reason for that, I think, is they don't want to sell the tickets as cheaply as that. Even though I'm sure you paid a lot of money, they wanted you to pay even more. And probably some people on that plane did pay a little more and they were quickly invited into the club. So after looking at Delta's, I looked at sort of the other big airlines rules. And in general, if you're buying an unrestricted first class seat, which not even many airlines sell anymore, right? But some do, that that usually will get you into the lounge on the flight you're flying. But there are a lot of more restricted tickets that get you into first class that don't have that access. And my guess is that's how exactly how you got stuck, Andrew, having to use your titanium level with Aeromexico and the partner piece to get in that way. Chris, you've done marketing and and certainly communications for airlines having to communicate these complicated policies. Do you think I have this right about the ticket type or do you think that the Delta Sky Club just messed up in Atlanta? No, I, I think you've got it right. The other thing I was wondering about was, you know, we often associate access to the lounge because you're an international first class traveler. And I have to wonder if some of these airlines view travel from Canada and Mexico through the U.S. as, quote, as international as from the U.S. to Japan or the U.S. to London or something else. So I, I was wondering, too, if, if they excluded Canada and Mexico, because you can, for the most part, use your mobile phone in Canada and Mexico as well. So, <laughs> uh, you know, are they kind of an extension of the Americas? In North America, that they're, they're not international travelers as as such. I, I I don't know, but I'm glad he got in. I also think there are some capacity restrictions in place right now. I mean, I came through DFW today, and there was a waiting line outside because of capacity controls. So it might have been a mix up in the communication too. Although they eventually let him in when he showed some other credentials. But good question. Um, I think it probably differs from carrier to carrier. But uh, we appreciate Andrew writing in. Well, I I think that's right, Chris. And I've noticed traveling around in the last month or two that not every club is open either. So airlines that may have clubs in a couple different piers, maybe this is some of the staffing issues that airlines are dealing with. And that combined with capacity limits in the club when they maybe don't even have all the club capacity online could be forcing them to be more restrictive on sort of who gets in at these times. Yep. 
Well, before we take our next question, a reminder that TA Connections partners with more than 140 aviation and cruise line companies and hundreds of thousands of hotels worldwide to consistently provide true savings to organizations. Learn more at taconnections.com, the world's leading provider of technology and services for crew and passenger logistics management. Ben, this next question is from Ryan in Charlotte, North Carolina. Hey guys, I enjoyed your interview with Barry Eccleston last week. I was struck by his comment that aircraft engines, not the aircraft themselves, are the most important part of aviation equipment manufacturing. So it prompts this question I've often wondered about, which is, how does the engine selection process work? Are those negotiations in parallel with the aircraft manufacturers? Do they start before the aircraft is selected, after? Seems like a lot of moving pieces, and I'd be interested in how it all happens. Great question, Ryan. And the answer is, it depends. Some airplanes don't have a choice of engine. If you buy a 737, it's going to come with a GE engine because they're the only company that puts engines on the 737, and that plane uses those engines. So if you buy a 737, you'll deal with Boeing directly if you're buying from them, and you'll certainly talk to GE and maybe try to get the best deal you can on the engine, which may include aftermarket servicing and things like that, but you're really buying one product, the airplane with the engines on it in that case. If you move over to the A320, however, that airplane can come with either a GE engine or a Pratt & Whitney engine on it. And so in that case, it is more complicated. And airlines usually concurrently, when they make the decision that they're looking at potentially buying an A320 family piece of equipment, either to add to the ones they already have or as a new airplane type, they will also go into discussions to try to figure out which engine they want to put on that airplane. And they will get pitched by both GE and Pratt as to the relative advantages, fuel wise and maintenance wise. They'll negotiate separately with those companies around the price they'll pay. And another real important point that Barry made in that uh, interview, which I listened to it again and was just amazed how much insight that guy has, was how you know, when you sell the airplane, when Boeing or Airbus or whoever sells the airplane, they basically make all their money then, but the engine guy is selling an annuity And they sell the engine, but then are really selling a long-term maintenance agreement with that engine. And so if the airline isn't able to pay off on that, they never really get all their money back. And so those, those negotiations are really, really important. At the end, they don't buy the engine separately from the airplane in a separate deal in that they will have one contract to deliver their A320 with a GE engine or with Pratt engines on it. But behind the scenes, the airline will actually negotiate with both the engine and the airframe manufacturer. It'll all be put into a single contract. The engine will be delivered to the aircraft manufacturer, not to the airline. So when you take delivery of the airplane from Airbus, it'll have the engines you ordered on it. You don't get them separately and you put them on. But it does add to the negotiation time. Airbus believes that that's an advantage to buyers of their airplanes, that they could potentially get a better price on the total product because they can create a competition among the engine. Boeing argues that by having a single engine manufacturer, they have more efficiency, more simplicity, and customers benefit that way. 
So my guess is that most of the time airlines are going to buy an airplane that either has the engine already chosen or has a choice. It's more about whether the plane itself is the right size and has the right overall economics. And then the engine choice will be an additional complication if, in fact, that's able to happen because the plane will allow it. I hope that's helpful, Ryan. Good question, Ryan. Good answer, Ben. Thank you. Listeners, don't forget that Seabury Security's team of experts has led 13 of the top 20 airline transformations and conducted over $100 billion in aircraft transactions, probably a few engines as well, with deep expertise in debt lease restructuring, aerospace supply chain turnarounds, and helicopter operator transformations. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburycapital.com. So Ben and listeners, our finer wine this week is from, I hope I get this right, Faux Lake from Hanover, Maryland. I went on an international flight with KLM. My carry-on bag was taken from me at the boarding gate to be checked in, and upon getting to my destination, my valuables had been stolen. They told me they are not liable and then will not even talk to me over the phone. The emails were very abrupt and insensitive. When I called, they never let me talk to anyone in customer service despite being on hold for over two hours. One time I finally reached a customer care rep and he hung up on me as soon as I asked for his last name or ID number. I hope no one ever has to experience this. Well, Chris, this is an interesting one. And I certainly wouldn't support anyone hanging up on a customer or being insensitive or abrupt. On the other hand, I think that no one with any experience traveling would put something really valuable in a checked bag. Now I get that this customer had was planning on carrying this bag on. So maybe they did have some more valuable kind of things that they didn't check or didn't want to check and wanted to carry it on. But every time I've been in a gate situation where the airline employees are asking if anybody was willing to check their bag because they don't think there's going to be room for all the bags on board, they almost always, and in fact, I think they always say, make sure to remove anything important from that bag, like medicines or other things you may need. So I'm sure in the moment of the situation, it's possible in the boarding, they said, look, that's not going to fit. We have to tag that bag. But I don't, I don't think if he had, um, he or she, I'm not sure, uh, whether Folek's a man or woman, sorry, (laughs) if he or she at that moment said, well, wait, I've got a camera in there or I've got electronics in there. I want to take that out and carry me on. They would have been annoyed, but they would have let them do that because they recognize that people don't want to put sensitive or really valuable things in checked luggage. And the other thing is that when you buy the ticket, And when this customer bought their ticket, they agreed to the contract of carriage, which they didn't read because no customer ever reads it. But that states very clearly what the airline will do if things are lost from your baggage. So knowing what that is would inform you to make sure not to put certain things in your check baggage. So for all of that, I'm going to say this is generally a whine because they should have not let that situation happen to have something in their bag that if it was, you know, that, that could be stolen that way. But it's not at all whining to say that they should be mad something was stolen if it was, or that they were treated rudely or 
somebody hung up on him. That's not right. But I think this was a relatively naive traveler, if I could say that, Chris, who didn't understand what was happening when they took their bag, didn't realize they needed to take things out, and then got caught with the contract they had agreed to at the other end. And a more regular travel would have sort of gotten all that. And I'm sorry that uh, this customer had to go through it this way. We forget, you know, you see it every day at TSA. I mean, there's still, and we've talked about this, there's still people who try to carry on a 30-ounce bottle of shampoo. I mean, we forget that <laughs> there are a lot of people in the system who aren't regular travelers. And my guess is there are people listening right now who have also forgotten and checked something in a bag that they shouldn't have, including the guy who's talking right now uh, when I put medicine in a bag I check or whatever it might be. So you, do have, you have to stay on your game. It doesn't excuse the pilfering of the bag or the treatment. But again, there's not a lot of claim here. So I'm sorry for the experience, but you got to stay on top of this as a traveler. That's a much nicer way to say it than I said. <laughs> You're clearly the communications expert. As we wrap up for this week, I'd like to give my shout out to the International Air Transport Association, which is a group that people hear the name I add. I don't always know what they do, but specifically they're launching a worldwide action group that's focused on improving and examining the safe and secure transport of mobility aids that are essential to accompanying travelers with disabilities. And I think that that's a really valiant and valuable effort to take place. We heard this last week about someone who had what they claimed was a $30,000 wheelchair damaged. And airlines should be better at carrying that kind of equipment. I can tell you in my experience, Chris, customers who have equipment that they need because of their disability are generally not difficult customers at all, right? They live with that equipment. It's part of them. They know what they need to have happen and they can deal with it and they don't ask for undue help, but they certainly don't want you to to break their piece of equipment. So my shout out goes to IATA for addressing this and saying, let's as an industry get better about carrying this kind of equipment and carrying these kind of customers without ruining their trip because we break their wheelchair or any other piece of equipment. Yeah, that's a great shout out. And it's a great initiative by Ada. And, you know, as you pointed out, people who rely on a wheelchair literally view that wheelchair as an extension of their body. So it's part of their being. And we need to be taking care of both the passenger and their wheelchair or whatever equipment they have. And my shout out this week is to baby Julie and her parents from Sioux City, Iowa. There's a post from a flight attendant that showed up on my LinkedIn feed and that I've seen it in multiple other social channels the past week. Julie's parents took her on her first plane ride this month. They handed out goodie bags to their neighbors on the plane with a note saying, hello, stranger. My name is Julie, and I just turned one on July 6th. I will try my best to be on good behavior. However, if I lose my cool, get scared, or my ears hurt, please accept this goodie bag to help make your flight more enjoyable. Thank you for understanding. I love this. I love the humanity of this. I hope Julie and her parents and her neighbors all had a great flight. And with that, I hope you had a good flight with this week's Airlines Confidential. Have a good week, everyone. Thanks for listening and happy belated birthday to Julie, too. There you go. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.